Good morning. Uh, as Wes introduced, uh, my name is Jesse Manning. I am the pastor of student ministries here at Berean. And Wes has invited me to kick off our three-week guest speaker series on the family tree. And this is our chance to take a look at what does Scripture say about our roles within family, whether we're parents or kids or spouses or grandparents or brothers or sisters. Scripture's got a lot to speak into the family unit. And so I'm really excited to be the first one to kick this off. I hope you're excited too, even if it means going for a week at least without the usual goatee, cute accent, southern charm that you're accustomed to. <laughs> Let's dive in right away this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Deuteronomy towards the beginning of the Bible. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read Scripture together. Uh, standing out of respect. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, looking at verses 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the family. We thank you that you've given us a task to do within the family. And this morning, as we are challenged to step up to the plate and do what you've called us to do, I pray that we approach Scripture with open hearts and open minds so that we can know how to be more obedient to you. Amen. You guys can have a seat. In 1982, Air Canada Flight 143 was preparing to take off from Montreal for a 1,700-mile flight to Edmonton. Now, this plane was the crown jewel of Air Canada. Less than four months old, it represented everything uh, that was new and advanced in the field of aviation. And so gone were the old dials and gauges, and instead, this plane's cockpit had digital readout of everything. All the information a pilot could want to know was right there on sleek computer screens. The plane had just come in from a shorter trip, was being refueled when they noticed that one of the screens wasn't showing a number that it should. The fuel sensor on the airplane had gone bad, and so they didn't have the information, or the amount of fuel displayed on the screen. Not a big problem because they just have to run some math in order to make sure they pumped enough gas into the plane. Now, the pilot thought it was the ground crew's job to do the math, and the ground crew thought it was the pilot's job to do the math. Little arguing ensued until they discovered it was the flight engineer's job to crunch the numbers. Just one problem, this plane was so advanced they got rid of the flight engineer's job. There was no flight engineer for this flight because the computers were supposed to do the heavy lifting. Okay, back to the drawing board. They have to figure out how much fuel they still need. And so one of the issues was the pump truck measures by volume, by gallons. Planes measure fuel by weight, by pounds. Not only that, Air Canada had just switched over to the metric system. <laughs> Planes on metric, pump truck is not. And, and they're trying to figure out how much, I mean, they have to convert gallons to liters and liters to kilograms. And somewhere in all of that calculating, they used the wrong equation. So that when the plane doors closed and it took off from the runway, they had less than half of the amount of gas they needed to make the journey. 
And so about halfway into the trip, first warning light comes on. Fuel pump, not working. Not uncommon. It happens sometimes. I mean, there's, what, five engines on a, on a plane there. So one going bad, not a big deal. Then the second one goes. Okay, we're going to call air traffic control and let them know, hey, we've got two fuel pumps malfunctioning. Our engines are not getting fuel. What should we do? Okay, well, we'll have to fix that. You need to come in for an emergency landing at the nearest airport. Okay, we're, we're heading, charting a course for that direction. As they're on the phone still with air traffic control, engine three, engine four, stop. They can't possibly, fuel pumps don't go out like that. Something's wrong. What they didn't know is that the fuel pumps are just pumping air because the gas tanks were empty. They had manually typed in how much fuel they thought they put in, so their digital override gauge showed fuel in the tank, but there was none. And with a loud clunk, the fifth engine finally seized up, and this massive Boeing 767 was now a glider. And with every second that ticked by, they were losing altitude. And so now they're frantic on the phone, like, we've lost all engines, we are going down, what should we do? Uh, air traffic is frantically looking through manuals. Oh, we have an abandoned Air Force base very close to you. Make an emergency landing. Okay, and so they're, they're guiding this plane, and, and because the engines have shut off, the generator's no longer working, so computer screen's dark. Engines are off, the hydraulic pressure pumps are not working, so steering is getting really difficult. They managed to wrestle this plane into line with the runway. And as they're coming in, what do they see at the end of the runway? RV campers, tents, and race cars. Nobody bothered to tell them because air traffic didn't know that they have been using this particular runway on the abandoned Air Force base for years, racing cars. There was literally nothing he could do. The plane was coming in. It's not like he can like, turn around and make another approach. No, he was coming in. So the only hope there was was to hit the brakes the second the plane touched down. They're coming in fast and quiet, and they prepare to, lop, to drop the landing gear. But of course, that's also powered by the jet engines. It's okay, though, because there's an override lever. He yanks the lever. Back tires drop out of the plane, lock into place. Front tires drop out of the plane, and another warning light. Wheels are down, but they're not locked. They have literally run out of time. Plane comes down, hits the back tires first on the runway, and immediately bursts all the tires. None, nose of the plane, front tire touch down, and the, the tires buckle underneath the weight. And the belly of this plane starts skidding down the runway. Now, if the auto racers didn't know there was a plane on the runway before, they knew now. <laughs> Sparks flying, people running. This thing is barreling down the runway, but the malfunctioning tires might have been just what saved them because as it scraped and skidded along, it ended up stopping a lot sooner than had it just been the brakes and the tires. The plane skids to a halt a mere 500 yards from where everybody else was gathered, and there were no injuries on the plane. While the ensuing investigation sought to answer the question on everybody's mind, who is responsible for an airplane running out of fuel mid-flight? Was it the pilot? Was it the ground crew? Was it the computer manufacturer who made the sensor that failed? Was it Air Canada? Are they responsible? Somebody is responsible for this thing not being full when it took off. Within our Christian communities, we're asking that same question about our college students. 
who after departing from our homes and leaving our youth ministries are finding their tanks running on empty and their faith stalling out not long after they've left. We hear stories about people walking away from the church, abandoning their faith, and we're pointing fingers saying, who didn't fill up the gas tank before they left? And so it brings us to the question of who is responsible for spiritually fueling our kids before they leave? The answer might surprise you because it is not the primary responsibility of the children's or youth pastor. That doesn't sound right. Isn't that what we pay you to do, Jesse? But it's precisely that type of thinking that leads to half-filled fuel tanks when students leave if the, the only person who's responsible for filling it is the youth pastor. George Barna disagrees when he says in his book, Revolutionary Parenting, he says, the responsibility for raising spiritual champions, according to the Bible, belongs to the parents. The spiritual nurture of children is supposed to take place in the home. Organizations and people from outside the home might support those efforts, but the responsibility is squarely laid at the feet of the family. This is not a job for specialists. It's a job for parents. And as we look at God's instruction today in the book of Deuteronomy, it's hard to refute that claim. It is clear that God has instituted the family as the primary spiritual influence for children. So how does that make you feel, parents? I mean, I'll be honest, it terrifies me. I've got a little guy, one and a half, Caleb, and to know that I'm responsible for making sure he knows who God is and he loves God, that's a big task. And I can find people smarter than me, cooler than me, more experienced than me, better at me at that job, and I would rather that they do that instead of me. Because my guess is they'll, they'll have better luck. And I know there are other parents who feel that same way. You think, Jesse, I'm not a biblical scholar. How am I supposed to train up my kid in Scripture when... I don't have it all figured out. Jesse, I'm not qualified for this task. While you may be thinking that, what you're forgetting is God delights in using the unqualified. I mean, take a look at Scripture. God, you want somebody to stand up to the government, convince them to let all of their free slave labor just leave, and then you want that person to travel and lead that massive group of people, and you pick a reluctant murderer with a speech impediment. Moses does not seem qualified for this job. God, you need somebody to bring grace to Nineveh. And you pick somebody who would rather see them all dead? Jonah does not seem qualified for the job. You need a group of people to travel and teach with the Messiah, and you pick blue-collar fishermen. They don't seem qualified. You need someone on whom you'll build the church, and you pick Peter, who denied even knowing you. He doesn't seem qualified. You need a new evangelist to spread the gospel to new places and new people, and you pick your strongest public opponent. Paul doesn't seem qualified for this job. And God, you're asking me to raise my son so that he knows and loves you, yet you pick a selfish sinner like myself for the task. God, I don't feel qualified. I'd rather the youth pastor just did it for me. But what you don't understand is that when God calls you to a task, he's not concerned with your ability. He's concerned about your availability. And so if you respond in obedience to God's calling, he will equip you for the task because he's called you to the task. 
And so where do we begin? I mean, I, I feel unqualified, but I know it's my job, and so I can't turn my back on that. I've got to do something, right? Well, I believe that verse 7 gives us a great outline of what we can do to spiritually raise our children at home. It says you to talk of these things when you sit together. Verse 7 starts with sitting together. Do you sit together with your family? Do you share a meal together? Does it involve more than just interrogating your teenager? I mean, by that I mean, do you converse? Do you share with them what's going on in your life? Do you ever talk about your idiot boss at work and how you're desperately trying to obey authority because God calls you to, but it's really difficult? Do you ever talk about finances at the dinner table and how there are times you're afraid that money's going to run out, but you trust that God will provide? Have you ever apologized to your spouse at the dinner table in front of the kids because you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to seek forgiveness? See, those messages about your faith in your life will always preach louder than anything I could say to them on a Wednesday night. That is why Scripture is calling you to gather around the table and talk about your faith. Now, some of you are saying, Jesse, you don't understand. My schedule is ridiculous. My family has no time to do dinner together. That might be a problem. Reggie Joyner, in his book, exploring this concept of family and church combining forces, says, families are currently running the risk of becoming relationally poor in the pursuit of becoming experientially rich. Which means that we are so focused on doing things, we don't leave time for being family. Scripture is clearly calling the family when you sit together to be conversing about your faith. And if you don't have time to sit together, that could be a problem. I might even encourage you to go so as far as to evaluate your schedule this summer and see next school year, do we need to make some changes? Because I promise you, raising up your child to know and love God is far more important than any sport or scholarship that's waiting for them. Yes, there's a balance, but I feel some families are out of balance. So Scripture's calling us to, to have these conversations when we sit together. Also talks about when we travel down the way or walk down the road. Now, we don't do a lot of walking as family units. Maybe around the block, maybe with the dog, but we don't set out walking to, to destinations. We can't even really do that because nine months out of the year, the, we're, the roads are impassable on foot. We live in Minnesota. But we sure do a lot of driving, don't we? <laughs> Amen from some of the parents. I would argue that drive time is prime time for having spiritual discussions. I mean, think about it. For one, you have a captive audience, literally captive in your car because they're not going to jump from a moving vehicle. At least not if you're going fast enough. You've got a captive audience and you are in control. You control the destination, the speed, the temperature, the music. I would even say you have the ability as the owner of the car, the licensed driver of the car, and the parent of the occupants to say... There are times when we travel together where cell phones won't be used. I, I would go a step further and I would identify a commute you make on a regular basis. Maybe every time you drive to dance practice. Maybe every time you pick them up to come home from school. Maybe the way to every football game on Fridays. You pick a specific drive time that you do on a regular basis where cell phones aren't allowed. Yes, you'll hear whining when you start this. So I'm going to teach you a little phrase to memorize so you can respond. Put it away or we just stay. 
Put your cell phone away or we ain't going anywhere. Because after time, you will build up the expectation that when I get in on the way to the game Fridays, my phone gets put away and dad and I are talking. So how do you start that? Here's what I'd recommend, a way for your family to, to start this drive time conversation. Pick a Saturday coming up soon and let your teenager know that you will treat them to lunch as long as the cell phone is put away for the trip there and back. Now, since few teenagers can pass up free food, they're going to bite at this offer. And so when they're in the car, the phone's put away, drive to McDonald's in Maple Grove. <laughs> you might not know this about me, but I grew up in Maple Grove. We moved there when it was farmland. And I remember the summer McDonald's came to town. Glorious summer. <laughs> McDonald's was in biking distance of my house and it became the hot spot for everybody to hang out at. It even replaced Super America gas station as the hangout spot. We had McDonald's and McDonald's signifies that you've made it as a town. <laughs> I have vivid memories of time spent at McDonald's and I would recommend this location specifically. You know what makes this McDonald's so unique? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is the same McDonald's as you'll pass 50 other ones on your way to this one. It's no different. But it's a 40-minute commute, which I think is a perfect amount of time to have deep spiritual conversations with your kids. Now, you might be saying, Jesse, you know how much that costs in gas? That's ridiculous. We could go right down the street to have a valley to McDonald's. I'm not going to spend a full tank of gas to get there and back. If that's your concern, let me ask you to talk to a parent who sent their kid to college last summer and say, would you trade an hour with you and your son or you and your daughter together in the car for the price of a tank of gas? And they say, I'd pay double that. It is a small monetary investment to make in the spiritual development of your son or daughter. And, and you may find that this trip to McDonald's becomes such a, a neat part of your relationship that you decide to expand your culinary options to other McDonald's in Elk River, St. <laughs> Cloud, Brainerd, Duluth. The Duluth McDonald's makes an awesome quarter pounder. You and your kids should drive up there to that McDonald's. <laughs> this would be an amazing opportunity to talk of these things as you walk down the way or drive to McDonald's. <laughs> Scripture also says, to speak of these things when you lay down. Growing up, how many people had a bedtime routine? Oh, if you have kids in the house right now, it probably looks like bath time, pajamas, brush your teeth, and bedtime prayers. I think bedtime prayers are one of the best things a parent can do to help provide an end cap to the day that has a focus on God. What better way to wrap up your day? And let's be honest, some of these prayers are just adorable that little kids say. We've got a couple that parents have submitted to a website uh, that illustrate just how cute and innocent uh, prayers of little kids are. We have one, Dear God, please tell Jesus to give us money so we can buy a baby. <laughs> There's a couple conversations you need to have with that kid coming up soon. This one's cute. Dear God, please let Daddy come home early tomorrow so we can play with my helicopter. Aww. Or this one from a three-year-old, Mom, can you ask God to bless the frog who missed the candy? <laughs> who? The frog who's supposed to catch the candy. He missed it. 
Who? The frog that lives on daddy's iPhone. Oh. I'll pray for him. Or this one. Dear God, thank you for this wonderful day. Please help me sleep well tonight and have a good day at school tomorrow. And please, if sickness is coming our way or is already on us, make it go away. Oh, and can you make mommy get some more sleep so she's not so cranky? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you want to know what's captivating the attention of your kids, listen to their prayers. Not only does it give you a peek into their life, but it provides you the opportunity to model dependence on God. I think bedtime prayers are incredibly significant. So why do they oftentimes fall by the wayside come the teen years? I mean, for one, the routines change. They don't take baths anymore because they shower in the morning, hopefully. <laughs> they don't need help putting on their pajamas. They oftentimes remember to brush their teeth because you see the toothpaste all over the sink and counter. And frankly, they don't want to be tucked in anymore. But those aren't reasons enough to stop doing prayer together at the end of the day. Maybe that looks like praying together as a family before everybody heads to their rooms. Or maybe it means you sitting down at the end of your teen's bed and saying, let's close the day in prayer. If you have two parents in the house, I recommend that they both do this because it's not mom's job to spiritually equip her children. It's not dad's job. It's the family's job. And I can say that for a father to sit at the foot of his son's bed and pray for his son... He is communicating volumes about his love for his son and his love for God. That message will always preach louder than anyone that I can give for you as a parent to be praying with your kids. And then also when you get up in the morning. Mornings can be crazy, but they oftentimes set the mood for the day. So what better time to set the spiritual mood of your day than in the mornings? Maybe it looks like father and son getting up early to do a devotion together. Maybe it looks like you taking the newspaper, putting it on the breakfast table, reading the, the stories of the day and saying, how do you think God would call us to respond in this situation? Maybe it means you're driving your daughter to school instead of having her take the bus because it affords you the time to memorize scripture together. Maybe you're simply writing a prayer for your kids that you pray over them before they leave for the bus and that you tuck that prayer in their backpack or lunchbox. Now, I don't know what the best thing for your family is, but I bet you've got some ideas. And I know what you're thinking, because I agree with you. Mornings are awful. My guess is that's why you're at this service, because you don't like mornings. <laughs> for me, I'm a night owl. Like, I would rather stay up two hours later than get up one hour earlier. And so for me, this devotional time in the morning was a struggle in college. Set my alarm to get up early. Find a nice quiet spot to sit down. Open scripture and begin reading. And, and this process produced more impromptu naps than meaningful time with God. And I felt a lot of guilt for a lot of time because I wasn't the morning devotional guy. But you know what worked for me? Taping some scripture up on the mirror. So when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror... Reading that verse is stuck in my mind from that moment forward as I get ready for the day, as I head off to class, as I go on my way out the door, that scripture's in my mind. And it's more effective than me trying to do devotions in the morning. So th the point of that is to say that there's not one specific way you have to set the spiritual mood, but you need to set the spiritual mood some way. 
Now, a lot of you, especially in the service, are sitting here thinking, this is great. I've got the morning off. Nothing Jesse could be talking about pertains to me because I don't have kids at home. Maybe you're a college student. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're newly married without kids. Maybe you're unable to have kids. Maybe you've had kids who are now grown with kids of their own. But nothing I could say could pertain to you because you don't have kids in the house. Oh, that's where you're mistaken. See, you're mistaken in assuming I'm only talking to parents, but let's rewind the tape for a minute and explore this verse. Look at how it starts. Notice that it doesn't say, Hear, O parents. This is not the small group portion of Moses' sermon where he's pulling all the moms and dads together and said, All right, now we're going to do a parenting class. No, the verse begins by saying, Hear, O Israel. Or if Moses was up here today, he'd say, Listen carefully, Berean. And he begins into the verse because for this audience, Moses wasn't addressing parents, he was addressing the church at large. And so nobody was sitting there nodding off during the sermon, oh, waiting for Moses to get something more important or something that pertains to them better. No, they were hanging on his every word because they knew that as a member of the community, Moses was speaking to them. And they understood that bringing up children with a love for God was a community event. It really does take a village. See, from an American viewpoint, we have a very individualistic perception on things. So when we hear the word your, we think my. Teach these things to your kids? All right, my kids. The original audience was a collectivistic culture. So when they heard teach these things to your kids, they heard our kids. And I think this would have been a lot easier to understand had Moses just learned to speak Texan. See, my parents now live in Texas. They moved there a little while ago, and they've acclimated very well. In fact, my dad owns cowboy boots, so he's gone full Texan on me. In my trip to Texas, I've learned that Texans don't tolerate such ambiguity of language. They've developed a way of talking that lets you know precisely who they're referring to. You means you as an individual. Y'all means a group over here. And all y'all is the entire room. And so when Moses was speaking and said, teach these things to your children, what Israel heard was, teach these things diligently to all y'all's children. <laughs> it really does take a, a village. Again, as an individual, you might say that once my teenager leaves the house, then my job's done. But as a member of this community, you recognize that you still have a job to do, and it's not a job that you retire from. In fact, two chapters earlier, in the same message to Israel, Moses instructs the group saying, make these things known to your children and your children's children. Which means that even if you're a grandparent, you're not retired yet. Because there's another generation coming up behind them that God is calling you to reach. In looking at the scripture, it's clear that God instituted the family as a primary spiritual influence of the children, but he did not create it as the only influence. Because that's where the church or faith family comes into play. So what does it look like for you as a member of the community to help raise up children that don't technically belong to you? Two things I'd recommend. Number one, active participation. Number two, intentional demonstration. Active participation means that you are actively involved in the ministries that Berean is doing that reaches children and teens. I don't think it's inappropriate for me to say that if Berean took seriously God's command to teach his word 
to all you all's children, then on a weekly basis, we'd have to turn away volunteers from the nursery because they simply had too many. And I'd have to say the same thing about our children's ministry programs and our youth ministry programs. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a, a ploy to get more volunteers in my ministry. No, this is me pointing out what obedience to God looks like within the context of a faith family. And I can say with authority that we do need more people helping out our teenagers. We do need more people in our children's ministries program. We do need more people in the nursery. But think back to your own spiritual journey. Was there not somebody other than your parents and youth pastor, potentially older than both of them, that spoke into your life and shaped your spiritual development? That could be you for some other kid. And so as we seek to be obedient to God, I want to challenge you to become involved in the ministries here at Berean. For the last 50 years, Berean has been doing that. And there's some surprising ways you can be involved. It doesn't have to be upfront teaching and preaching. It can be behind the scenes. We've got a husband and wife team every week that comes down on Wednesday nights and sets up our youth cafe. Grill the hot dogs, prep the chips, the candy bars, the pop, all the really healthy food that we love to give teenagers. This husband-wife team preps it every week and even through the summer, and that's their area of service. They help us create a welcoming environment where teenagers come, hear about the grace of God around adults who care about them. They're involved in the ministry. VBS is coming up. And every year we've got guys out in the parking lot directing traffic. Now they're not up on the stage singing. They're not doing the Bible stories to the little kids, but they are actively involved in the ministry Berean has set up to reach the children of our community. On Saturday nights, there is a father-son team downstairs running the sound booth for the children's ministries program. They've been doing it for a year now, and they love, like, hanging out together in the sound booth and mixing the stuff. And this father-son team knows what it means to be involved in the ministry of Berean. And for, like I said, for the past 50 years, Berean's been doing that. We've had a thriving children's program, fantastic youth program, because individual members of Berean, young and old, parent and not, have understood their call to reach the next generation. Not in place of parents, but in partnership with parents. Because our programs seek to supplement the teaching already being done at home. So you can be involved in the ministries here at Berean, but also ask for intentional demonstration. Demonstration means that you seek the opportunity to teach those younger than you about God through words and deeds. It's been said that actions speak louder than words. And I love what Robert Fulgram, an American author, does. He reframes that and says, Don't worry so much that your children don't listen to you. Worry instead that they're always watching you. It's a sobering reminder that my actions communicate things to my kids. But in the context of communicating faith, we have to recognize that words and actions both communicate. So how do our words communicate faith in God? Well, does the grace you've received from God permeate your discussion about other people? Does the forgiveness you've received from God make its way into your conversations about people you're in conflict with? Does the, forgive, or does the selflessness and sacrificial love of God become evident when you discuss changes happening that you don't care about? See, when you're talking to people and about people, you're preaching a message to the kids around you. So, what are you preaching? And I'm not, I'm not calling out an individual person or, or group or even service as being 
ungracious, unforgiving, or selfless, but we have to keep in mind that the words we use when kids are around are preaching a message about God. So what are we preaching? Likewise, our actions also influence those younger than us. That's why in this letter to Titus, Paul instructs the older men of the church to model self-controlled behavior to the younger men so the younger men know what it looks like by watching them. Same with the women. Women teach what is good and what is pure so that the younger women know what it looks like to love somebody else because they've watched you in your example. Again, Paul's not writing this letter to parents. He's writing it to the church because the members of the church need to understand that the way we speak and the way we act shape those younger than us and we need to exist as models of what it means to follow Christ. So how do your actions influence? What are some specific ways that you can show your faith to those around you that are younger? There's a hundred different ways. But off the top of my head, we've got the act of worship preaches your love for God. The act of tithing preaches your love for his church. The act of volunteering preaches your love for other people. The actions you do, even when you're here on a Sunday morning, are communicating to kids your love for God. Now, sure, I could give a message to teenagers and talk about loving God and loving the church and other people, but compare that to the message they'd receive if their grandfather called them up and said, Grandson, you know how I love God, his church, and other people, and that's why I've signed you and I up to help paint the first grade Sunday school classroom at Berean next weekend. Look forward to seeing you there. (laughs) Well, you can actually do that. I think we are still looking for volunteers, by the way. But my point is... For a grandfather or for a father to take their grandson or son with them as they demonstrate through action their love for God, his church, and other people's, that message will always preach louder than the message I can give. And so scripture calls a family to infuse the day from morning to night with opportunities to discuss their faith. Scripture also calls the church to train the younger generation by the example they set when they participate in ministry and how they interact with words and deeds. So back to my original question. Whose job is it to fill the spiritual fuel tanks of our children? Is it the church or is it the family? The answer is it's the job of both to do. Why this two-pronged approach? Why does the family need the church? Because the family is imperfect. Why does the church need the family? Because the church is not perfect. But when the church and the family combine forces to equip the next generation, not only are we being more obedient to God's call for us as individuals, but the results that we see are better than if either one had to do it alone. It reminds me of the redwood trees in Northern California. I don't know if you've ever been to the the National Forest there, but these trees, that park is home to some of the tallest trees on the planet. The tallest one there reaches 380 feet into the sky. These trees have been around for hundreds of years and weathered quite a few storms. In fact, the largest storm that they had to endure happened on Columbus Day in 1962. Largest storm ever to hit that region of the U.S. Fell into a Category 3 hurricane-type wind with wind speeds in some areas in excess of 170 miles an hour at least. That's what was recorded before the instruments were ripped off the building. After the storm in 1962 on Columbus Day, people walked around just marveling at the devastation that the storm brought. It was estimated there was approximately 15 billion board feet of lumber that was lost because of toppled trees. 
And so as people looked at all the loss, there are others still who noticed what was still standing. These redwood trees. How is it that the tallest trees around are able to withstand some of the strongest winds out there? How could they still be standing when other trees fell? Well, the redwood has a very unique characteristic about it that helps it withstand such force. And that is the redwood tree's roots go down in the ground and out, and they intertwine with the roots of other redwood trees. And in doing so, they create a base that is far stronger than any tree growing by itself. As we seek to raise children with a spiritual fuel tank that will last beyond high school, we have to recognize that we can no longer say, I thought that was your job. The home family and the faith family need to intertwine our roots as we try to communicate gospel transformation to all y'all's children. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the task that you've given us to raise kids, whether the kids in our house or the kids in our faith family here. You've given us that responsibility, and it's a responsibility we don't take lightly. My prayer this morning is that uh, we can implement some new traditions in our family unit at home that help us discuss our faith and our life and how they intersect. Not only that, we have the opportunity to be involved in ministry here at Berean for the children that don't necessarily belong to us, but belong to our faith family. God, Open our hearts to your calling for us this morning and give us the strength to respond in obedience. Amen.